0: Hello, this is Scott O'Neill, 25 years in the sports business, an executive that's happy and healthy and thriving, and you are listening to Follow Your Dreams podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, Then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast with listeners in 192 countries. I am Robert Miller, your host. For all of you regular listeners to this podcast, you know that I have interviewed many famous musicians. Because after all, I'm a musician too. But the full podcast title is Follow Your Dream, Music, and Much More. And one of the much more subjects that I like to feature is sports. My guest today fits that bill. Today's guest is Larry Berger, a senior producer for USA Today Sports Video. Previously, he worked for the NBA and MSG. He's interviewed three U.S. presidents, how about that, and hundreds of sports stars. He also mentors elite amateur athletes about their brands and young people who want to break into sports journalism, so we have a lot to talk about. And you know that in every episode, I feature one of my songs underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make the song relevant somehow to my guest or the subject matter. And in this instance, I've decided that the song I'm going to feature in this episode is my version of a song called The In Crowd, which was a big hit in the mid-60s by a guy named Dobie Gray. And we re-recorded this as our own kind of song on the album PGS7. Why did I choose this song? Well, in this country, sports stars are definitely the in crowd that everyone wants to hang around with. And Larry Berger has hung around with the in crowd for his entire professional career. How lucky can you get, huh? So Larry, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Robert, that's quite an
0: introduction. Thank you so much. I'm honored to be here.
1: My pleasure. I got to give the little backstory here. Larry came to be on this podcast because I was walking around one early Sunday morning. It was like 7.30 or 8 a.m. I had my headphones on. And I'm listening to WFAN, which is one of my favorite radio stations. And you can get this now on the internet. As I turned it on, I hear this guy talking about mentoring and teaching young people how they can get into sports journalism. And it was Larry. And I I listened to the whole interview. And I said, you know, this is great. I'd love to have this guy on my show. And then I tried to find him. And you know, for some people, I guess it's easy to find others on the internet. I don't know. For me, I had to search and search. I finally found a way to connect with them. And now you're on the show.
0: Amazing. Amazing. I'm glad you found me. Thank you so much again for having me.
1: You bet. All right. So let's start with the headline stuff. You interviewed three U.S. presidents. And I'm trying to guess, who are the three that you interviewed? Bill
0: Clinton, George Bush. And um, a funny story, Um, I guess I interviewed him on a technicality. We spoke for over an hour, Richard Nixon. And it was when I was um, in college and I was the sports director of my college radio station. I didn't have my tape recorder at the time, but I, I was at a local hotel in Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. And I went to the indoor swimming pool. I don't know why. I just passed through the indoor swimming pool. And there he was sitting by himself poolside on a sunday morning just doing laps and, and relaxing um you know beside the pool wait wait wait
1: this is nixon that was sitting by the pool that's correct richard nixon was he president at that time or this is way afterward he had no been, no this is, resigned. this is way after
0: okay yeah this was um i believe 1989 so, somewhere in that general vicinity did he have secret service all
1: around him or is
0: just him? he had nobody around him. Nobody, just, just, just (laughs) just me and him. And I started talking to him and we started talking sports, which was a topic near and dear to, to both of us. My favorite club is always the home team. I'm for the Mets and for the Yankees both, but I have a soft spot in my heart also for the angels. And, you know, he, he told me about the play. He diagrammed for George Allen with the Washington football team. And I, I talked about my passion for the New Jersey devils And it was just like two old friends swapping sports stories. And it was absolutely an incredible experience. And I remember going to the payphone no cell phones at this point, and calling my parents. And, you know, they lived uh, about a mile from there. And I lived there as well. And they came down to the hotel. And President Nixon was extremely cordial, said hello, and (laughs) was just a wonderful guy, you know. And we were talking. Yankees and football. He, he didn't follow too much Devils, didn't follow too much hockey, but um, really a passionate uh, sports fan. And we hit on a, a lot of uh, a lot of relevant topics of the day.
1: That's fantastic. So he went from Kissinger to Burger, huh? <laughs>
0: exactly, exactly. <laughs>
1: That's very, very cool. Okay, and you've interviewed so many different sports stars, and I know two of them were Wayne Gretzky and Michael Jordan. Tell us a little bit about those interviews.
0: Well, the Michael Jordan one occurred when I was 25 years old. I was working for NBA Entertainment in Secaucus, New Jersey, and NBA Entertainment produced the greatest, I guess I'm a little biased when I say this, but um, some of the greatest sports documentaries, series like uh, Inside Stuff, PSAs, home videos that you would rent at Blockbuster virtually every piece of video content was produced out of our office in in Secaucus, New Jersey. So I was walking the halls as a 25-year-old. I started when I was 22. And when I was 25, 1996, I was walking the halls and was the case, you know, on 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 a few occasions where I would be stopped by the assignment desk and they'd say, you know, how would you like to go here to interview this person? How'd you like to go here? And they were all awesome assignments, you know, traveling the country and going to Phoenix or Portland or wherever it is that they had a story. But on this one instance, they said, how'd you like to go to Chicago tomorrow to interview Michael Jordan at media day? So I said, yes, I'd love to do that. So I show up at the Burdo Center in Chicago, which is where the Bulls would practice, and there was hundreds of media members, and there was uh, a, you know a little velvet rope, and all the media were behind the rope, and I'm saying to myself, okay, this is kind of cool. I'll get my microphone in there, and I'll be one of you know many uh, reporters getting an interview with Michael Jordan. And I show up and they're like, no, no, you're on the other side of the ropes. You have a a one-on-one sit-down interview with Michael Jordan because you work for the NBA. And, you know, I was beside myself. It was one of my early interviews um, and being on the road for NBA Entertainment. And I remember asking the questions and he was sitting, you know, three feet away from me. And it was like listening to Charlie Brown's teacher, you know, wah, 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 wah. It was an out-of-body <laughs> experience, you know, to be able to sit there and to talk to Michael Jordan about basketball. And this was at the height of his popularity. You know, fast forward, you know, 25 years and my, my son is is named Jordan. So no coincidence there. But uh, he was an idol of mine and getting a chance to interview him was amazing. And then after Chicago, I had a drive to Milwaukee to interview uh, Glenn Robinson and Vin Baker, uh, who were playing for the Milwaukee Bucks at the time. And I remember, you know, and that that was a big deal. Those were two stars of the time. But I couldn't focus on that because I had just interviewed Michael Jordan. And I'm in the rental car driving the hour to Milwaukee. And I, somehow I had a cell phone. I rented a cell phone or the company gave me a cell phone or something along those lines. And I just remember calling everybody that I know that I just interviewed Michael Jordan. It was an incredible experience. And 25 years later, it still resonates.
1: Did you feel prepared when you were doing it? I mean, did you have the right questions at hand or did you just wing it?
0: I had, I I prepared. I I had prepared because at NBA Entertainment, we had numerous shows and series and different uh, departments that needed content from him. So I knew I needed to Um, make sure I got something for every department. So I was prepared in that regard.
1: And a guy like Jordan, was was he helpful in the interview? Because I know some guys that you would interview, the celebrities, they couldn't care less.
0: They barely give you any answers. What was Jordan like? He was great. He was absolutely wonderful. And I I vividly remember at the end of the interview, I had to ask him to do a tag, which is like, you know, hi, I'm so-and-so athlete and you're watching so, you know, whatever show to tag.
1: We're going to do the same thing on this one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I remember he, he, he could, he flubbed the lines three times. I think it was, and it was such an easy, easy tag for him to do, but he smiled and he, you know, he wasn't frustrated. He wasn't angry. He wasn't, Like, do you know who I am? You know, do do I really need to do this tag? (laughs) He he wasn't like that, and 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 I remember that vividly. And I remember, you know, him treating me with the utmost respect. And I I just, I walked away from that with uh, with a very positive experience. And that was the second time I really got a chance to be up close with him. When I was in college, I would get press credentials to cover Nets games, and. I would get credentials. I I went to school up in Albany and I would get, I would call up the day before the game and I would acquire credentials to cover the Pacers and the, you know, the bucks and the Blazers. And I remember for three years, I tried to get bulls credentials, you know, for the Nets bulls and I couldn't do it. You know, every other team, no problem, no problem, no problem. Finally, my senior year, I asked, you know, please, I, I'd love to just cover, you know, the, the, the Bulls, Nets game, and the PR person agreed. So I went there, and I'm in the locker room, and, you know, it's, it's very unprofessional to ask for, for autographs. And I remember one member of the media took out something, magazine, picture, trading card, something like that. And there was an audible gasp in the, in the, in the locker room. Oh my gosh. He violated that. What's he doing now? Yeah, exactly. So Jordan, you know, grabs it, you know, takes it to to sign it and it was almost like everybody drew their weapon. Everybody had something in in their pocket, in their attache case. Everybody had a magazine, Baby Jordan sneakers. So once they
1: figured out that it was okay to do it, everybody took something out, huh? And
0: Michael Jordan just said, like, you know, he's like, "Guys, line up! I'm signing one apiece.
1: <laughs> Isn't that nice? Isn't that it was, nice?
0: It was truly, truly remarkable. So that—that's my brushes with with Michael Jordan.
1: That's cool. So look, you've been in the sports business for a long time. There are certain things that are happening now in sports that I don't understand, and I want to get your opinion on them. Number one the whole gambling thing, okay? When I was growing up, and probably you too, gambling was the furthest thing from sports that ever could happen. Every league tried to prevent gambling. They tried to root out any kind of gambling or controversy of that sort. Now, everybody's into gambling. All the jocks, all the sports heroes, they all do advertisements for gambling. I don't get it. And the biggest thing of all to me is, he got the best player maybe in modern baseball history, Pete Rose, that can't be in the Hall of Fame because he was involved in gambling. Pete Rose won three World Series,
0: three batting titles, made 17 All-Star games, and has the most hits in baseball history. But he is still not in the Hall of Fame. Now we'd probably be doing advertisements for gambling. What's the deal here? I think it's just a changing of attitudes. It's a changing of um, of of what's accepted. And, and there's a lot of money at stake, too. you know? Obviously, there's a lot of money at stake. I understand what you're saying. I, I, I get it, and, and I think a lot of the popularity with the major sports um, emanates from gambling. So I think it's good business uh, for for a lot of different parties. And the Pete Rose, I, I mean, I vividly remember Pete Rose uh, towards the end of his career. Tremendous, tremendous player. And, and, and you're probably right. If he was playing today, he would be extremely marketable and he would have a, an endorsement deal and, uh, you know, he, he'd, be, he'd fit in perfectly.
1: And now he's in Las Vegas signing baseballs for $10 a piece because that's how he has to make a living. I mean, isn't that crazy?
0: It, it, it is. And he's been doing that for a long time. And I, I would venture to say that it's it's a lot more than ten dollars. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's probably making, you know, at least 40, 50. And, and you know, it's funny, um, Robert, you talk about the, the autographs and the signing for money. I just saw an advertisement for Sandy Koufax. He's one thousand dollars per autograph. Really? A thousand dollars. And if you look at Tom Brady, his he's probably double that.
1: Oh, he's got to be double that. Well, the world has changed. There's no question about it. Okay. Gambling has become accepted. You're right. It's big, big money, but it was always big money. And the scandals were always because it was big money. But, you know, they did their best for so many years to keep it out of sports. And now it's everywhere. Okay. The other subject I wanted to get your opinion on, and I know that you're involved in this, you mentor amateur athletes about their brands. And there's not that many guys that probably fit into that category. But this was another door that got open recently that I didn't understand where they now let college kids earn money before turning pro. Uh, you would know the, the details of this better than me. What's, what's the deal with this?
0: Yeah, you're talking about name, image and likeness. And uh, that allows uh, amateur athletes to profit off of, um, you know, their athletic ability and their marketability. So, um, you know, again, you know, t- times have changed, you know, the, 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 coaches have always made a significant salary and now the athletes, you know, want, want that as well. And they are, they're getting that they're, they've, they bring in such a significant amount of revenue, um, that they're, they're drawing a salary now. And, and, and I think the most important thing, and you, you alluded to it is for the athlete to, to be media trained. And, and to know how to grow their brand uh, through proper interviewing and social post, social media posting techniques and, and, and really learning instead of at age 19, 20, at the age of 12 and 11 and 13, to really understand how it works and how do you grow your brand and what are the, some of the key things to, to do in order to play offense with your brand as opposed to playing defense, meaning how do you utilize the space that you're provided on your social media as well as you know, the mainstream medias, uh, the real estate that they're providing? How do you maximize it as opposed to playing defense, meaning what not to post, what not to say? And it's extremely important. And what I do is I take lessons from the you know thousands of interviews that I've done, and I extract what works and what doesn't work and these are in interactive experiences with elite amateur athletes it's not me talking and them taking notes it's really a back and forth with me you know really stressing what works and and what are some of the tricks of the trade to to get the best possible positive promotion for yourself your school your team your league etc
1: I would imagine that the first thing they, most of them have to do is delete everything that they've posted before they speak with you, because every kid's got pictures and all kinds of stuff on the internet that they probably don't want anybody in the real world to see.
0: It's very important. It's 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 extremely important because we're, we're seeing it now with Nestor Cortez of, of the Yankees. And, you know, the, he's just the latest, but there's such a long list of athletes that get banged because... Years ago, they've posted things that are objectionable. So yes, I would recommend not only athletes, but everybody, you you know, look at your social media, you know, go back to to the beginning of it and, uh, you know, see what, see what should be taken off, you know, because people are looking.
1: You're right about that. You know, I, I, I'm sure I'm dating myself terribly in this interview, but I think back to the time when, you know, the Olympics was all about being an amateur athlete. And they had all the rules about, you know, what it meant to be an amateur. And of course, that went out the window years ago. And now you got professional hockey players and others that are in the Olympics. There was something that was uh, quaint and unique. And kind. Of, I liked the idea that there was a differentiation between professionals and amateurs. And they, I don't know, maybe it was just the time that I was raised.
0: Well, I mean, I, I would, I would say that the 1980 Olympic hockey team was one of the watershed moments of of my life. I was nine years old in 1980 and, and it really further cemented my passion for 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 sports. And, you know, of the people that I've interviewed, you mentioned Wayne Gretzky, Michael Jordan, and you know, many, many others. A couple of years ago, I interviewed Michael Ruzioni. Um, Ruzioni, yeah. And it was just, it was amazing it's 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 on my short list of favorite interviews of all time and you know we talked about so many great stories some of which i had never heard before the the night before the the game against um against russia he was he was drinking beers with his with his father at a campground you know right outside lake placid i didn't know that and and, and just to talk to you know a true sports hero uh, was just um, um, amazing, extraordinary, and something I'll never forget. But you're right. I mean, those am- he was an amateur. You know, that whole team was a group of amateurs.
1: Aruzzioni and a couple of the guys from that team went to my alma mater, which was Boston University. So we had seen them play, you know, hockey at a, at a college level. And then, you know, going off to the Olympics, everybody just thought it was a lark because, you know, they're going against the best team in the world in the Russians. And that was just such an amazing situation when they won. So five seconds left in the game. you believe in miracles? Yes! Really was amazing. Okay, I want to talk about one other subject with you here. Who were your favorite sports journalists growing up?
0: Favorite sports journalists growing up. Wow.
1: <laughs> Let's start with TV. TV, who were your best TV journalists?
0: Uh, did still Rizzuto count? Is he, a, is sure. he a journalist? He was, sure, he was why the not? announcer for the Yankees. He hits one deep to right center. That ball is out of here. The Yankees win the pennant. Holy cow. Chris Chambliss on one swing. I loved him. Uh, him, Bill White, Frank Messer. Um, they were my favorites. A- a- any time that they were on, uh, on channel 11, I was, uh, I was in heaven just listening to, um, you know, them broadcast the games. And fast forward to about three days ago, I went to the Somerset Patriots game here in New Jersey. That's double A for the Yankees and ran into Sparky Lyle. And, you know, we were just talking about um, about those days. And my favorite was Greg Nettles. And from that point on watching him early on, I always wore the number nine in his honor. But it was just amazing to talk to Sparky Lyle about those games that I used to watch and listen to Phil Rizzuto and Frank Messer and, and, and Bill White announce. Uh, sports is amazing like that. You know, it's just, you know, there's so many great experiences and you never know when you're going to relive one from 10 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. So it was it was kind of um, exciting.
1: And it's always in you, too those experiences. Totally. Okay, like when I was growing up, the number one announcer that I just can't forget was a guy named Marty Glickman. Mm -hmm. And Marty Glickman was the play by play guy for the New York football Giants. And I was always a Giants football fan. But you could close your eyes because it was all radio at that time. And Marty Glickman would describe the field, the setup of the two teams. And you could just imagine the entire play unfolding, you know, in front of you. On the field now. Giffin yep, flanked to the right side, the rest of the ball club is tight. Table calls signals. Go straight back to pass on first down. And he's rushed and hit down for a loss back to the 31-yard line. He could not find a receiver. It was just the talent that a guy like he had. And this, you know, I'm sure as as things went into television and you had the video angle on the whole thing come into play. It wasn't as important as the guys that were in the radio side of things because they had to set the image for everybody. But those guys were fantastic.
0: Agreed. And, you know, you're talking about about, um, Marty Glickman. Jim Gordon was another one of my favorites growing up. He he announced for the Giants um, with Dick Lynch. And he was so excitable. And I caught him at the tail end of his career. And he made a lot of mistakes. You know, it was, uh, and then... Giants have a first down. No, wait, 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 wait. But the, the, the amount of excitement that he brought to the table was just extraordinary. And, and of course, he had a story, storied career announcing um, with Bill Chadwick, with the Rangers and, um, you know, a couple of other stops along his, his, his path. But he was another one that I really enjoyed listening to.
1: Now, what about Howard Cosell? How'd you feel about him? Did you ever interview Howard?
0: No, I, I met him once when I was young. I never interviewed him. And I I I have a you know a little bit of memory of him, you know, from Monday Night Football. If I'm not mistaken, he he was the announcer when John Lennon w- was killed. Yes. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game, no matter who wins or loses. An unspeakable tragedy confirmed to us by ABC News in New York City. John Lennon. Outside of his apartment building on the west side of New York City, the most famous perhaps of all of the Beatles, shot twice in the back, rushed to Roosevelt Hospital, dead on arrival. So I I remember his unique cadence uh, very well in terms of his heyday with Muhammad Ali. I, I don't have too many recollections of that.
1: It's too bad because he really was a spectacular announcer. He was so erudite. He was so knowledgeable about the sport. He elevated, I think, the sport of announcing or the announcing of sports to a level that it hadn't been before. And I know that a lot of people didn't like Howard Cosell. He was pompous. He was arrogant. But again, it was part of showbiz and he was right there.
0: Without a doubt. And, you know, I, as journalists, I guess we're taught to like be in the background and not be the story, but, but he, he was the story. You know, He was the story. He, he, made, he made himself larger than life. One, one other announcer that really stuck with me was um, Mel Allen. And I used to attend the Hall of Fame induction ceremonies every year in Cooperstown. Autumn in New York, and even in the United Nations building, there will be timeout for baseball because autumn in New York is World Series time. And he was a kind man. And I remember one time, I think it was nine or ten years old. I, I I had a pocket tape recorder and asked him to do the um the the message for for my family's answering machine. And you know, he said, "Hello, everybody. This is Mel Allen. You've reached the burgers." You know, in, in his uh, in his, so in his distinct voice, and, and that was our message for for a year or so.
1: You should have saved that, Larry. You should have saved it.
0: it it's somewhere. It, it, it's it's. I don't throw anything out, so it exists somewhere. The, the cassette is probably disintegrated by now. But um, you, you being the musician, you, you would know better than, than than I do. How how long do cassettes last for?
1: Not that long, but you can you can actually preserve them. Okay, that would have been a great thing to convert into uh, digital. But you know, it's just one of those things. What can you do? Anyway. That's fabulous. Okay. So for kids that want to get into sports journalism today, what are you recommending?
0: Have a plan B. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Seriously, have a plan B. But um, separate yourself from the pack. I, I, you know, try to mentor uh, my son's in elementary school here. I'm trying to start a program where I bring in pro athletes. Into his elementary school for the group of um, video producers, they're training in, with uh, video equipment to interview them and to really, you know, get comfortable. You know, just like um, Pat Lafontaine allowed me to gain a little more self confidence in my interviewing when I interviewed him as a freshman in college. I want these kids to really feel confident that what they have to say and how they present themselves is is good, you know, it's acceptable and, and, and to keep working at it. I would say um up until high school, devote yourself completely to your craft. Figure out how to be the best at what you can do. And by interviewing your classmates on video, writing articles on them, commentating, it's the exact same thing that 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 the professionals do, except the professionals have done it over and over and over again. And it's just a matter of reps. So as early as you could start, the better it is. Once you hit, I would say, high school at some level, in addition to perfecting your craft, you really have to develop relationships. And and that's the most important thing. I always like to say it's it's roughly a 70-30 split as to relationships and providing yourself an edge through contacts that you have versus the 30%. Which is being good at, at, at your craft. So I, I would say up until high school, you know, work on on um, reps on every facet of of sports broadcasting. And then once you hit high school, maybe even a little bit before, there could be some crossover is to figure out, you know, who prays at your church or your temple, who who is an alum of your high school, of your your parents' college, um you know, that sort of thing, you know, in order to acquire, job shadowing experiences, anything at all that you can do to supply yourself an edge is extremely, extremely important. And that's how you're going to hopefully um, give yourself the best chance to break through. And, and I say hopefully because supply and demand would indicate that not everybody is coming away with a trophy here. So um, you just got to do, do the best that you can, you know, to, to be in a position to receive the luck, because I think a lot of this is luck and and you have to position yourself to, to get the luck.
1: A lot of life is luck. And so is this. We've been talking here with Larry Berger about sports. He's in with the in crowd. This is exactly the area that so many kids and so many people want to be in. I want to thank you, Larry, for being on the podcast with me. And we are now going to listen to the song that started off underneath the introduction. It's my reimagined version of The In Crowd by Dobie Gray originally. And I want to thank you all for listening. And we will see you in the next episode. Thanks, Larry.
0: Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at Robert at dot And you can hear more from his band at Project dot com and at I know where the PGSstore.com. Where
1: in crowd goes.